Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 5. We've been working through uh, the Gospel of Luke for about seven months, and uh, we kind of had a month off through Christmas, and uh, Jesus' public ministry has just been beginning. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus went to his hometown synagogue and proclaimed himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, uh, that he is the promised redeemer. He basically stood up in his hometown synagogue and said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah. And they were filled with doubt and anger as he exposed their unbelieving hearts to be like uh, their fathers of the Jewish faith. Uh, so many of them that rejected the prophets here in his hometown, they're, re- they're rejecting the one they've been waiting for for thousands of years. And then we saw how Jesus left there and went to all these different synagogues preaching the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived. And last week we saw how in one of the synagogues uh, the demons cried out. They knew who he was. They were wondering why he has arrived early. And they're asking, are you here to destroy us? And we got to see Jesus as king. And if you remember, I just want to remind you, the challenge was, is is Christ going to be king of your heart? Is the kingdom of God going to rule your life? Or are you going to be on that throne? And then that leads us to this text, Luke 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and caught and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all, all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought in their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now, most of you know that one of the hobbies I enjoy is bow hunting. Uh, it's one of the things I look forward to every year. Uh, I got into it probably about uh, 15 years ago uh, when I lived in Minnesota, and I was at a I was a youth pastor at a church uh, north of Minneapolis, about an hour and a half, and I made some really good friends that uh, got me into bow hunting. And for anyone who's familiar with bow hunting. Uh, you know that a lot of what you do is wait. <laughs> you get one buck tag a year, and you you put a whole lot of time in, 
whether it's putting out trail cameras in the summer or scouting out your spots and setting stands, you're putting all this time in to really make one shot. And 99% of the time, you're unsuccessful. You go out uh, hunting. Uh, I don't know how many times I get home. I'm in the garage. I'm hanging my bow up. I'm taking my hunting clothes off. And the girls open the door and they say, Dad, did you get one? (laughs) And almost always I say, no, I didn't get one. Um, I saw some but didn't see one big enough or something like that often is the result. But one of the things I enjoy most about bow hunting is actually doing it uh, with somebody else. Uh, Sitting alone in a tree is all right, but sitting in a tree with your friend for three hours without the TV, without the Internet, uh, and seeing God's uh, nature... And just even talking about life is something special. But one of the things that happens, especially when uh, my three friends, they come up for a week, and I'll warn you when that is, and you can pray for Laura. Uh, <laughs> they come up and stay with us, and testosterone finally enters my house. <laughs> it, it just feels amazing. <laughs> but... uh One of the things that happens as you're sitting there, and you're going to be sitting there for three or four hours, is you start to daydream and imagine about the monster buck coming in. Because what I love about bow hunting is, and here's what I tell myself, you can laugh at me if you want, but I always say, today, the South Dakota state record could happen to walk by my stand. It's a true statement. It's not very likely that it will happen, but it could happen. And not only that, the world record buck could walk by my stand. And I can find myself daydreaming, imagining through those trees that I've been staring at for four hours all of a sudden, the buck appearing. All of a sudden, there it is. And it's so real in my mind. It never happens, but (laughs) it's so real. And then to sit there and talk about it with a friend. What if this happened? What if this happened? Oh, I'd be so nervous I wouldn't be able to shoot. That's just what hunters do. Now, our story is about fishermen, and I'm assuming that if you fish for a living, you're probably doing similar things with catching fish, especially if you're fishing with a net and you're going after numbers of fish. Now, in 2011, after sitting in a tree with one of my friends, Ryan, for about 11 years, we had always talked about what if a 160 came in, you know, just imagining this. Hours and hours and hours and hours in a tree. What if this happened? Well, in this particular season, it was kind of a flood year. And the James River was flooded. And one of the bends in the river was actually made an island. And uh, all the spots uh, I could normally hunt, I couldn't hunt anymore uh, because they were all flooded. So we were kind of hunting on the outskirts. And lo and behold we saw some deer out on the island. And uh, I can't make this story too long. (laughs) But we weren't having much luck, and my friend said, let's find a boat. Let's get over on that island. Let's just try it. Long story short, first night there, we look, and it's kind of like a little horseshoe island. And we're on this side of the horseshoe, and all of a sudden a doe stands up on the other side. That's weird. There's deer out here. They have to swim to get there. And then, after 11 years of waiting, the monster buck stands up. (laughs) And I'm looking out with my binoculars, and I'm telling, I I just said, Ryan, 170, 
double split uh, G2s. He's a monster. And he says, yeah, right. You know, we've done this a hundred times. I said, I'm not kidding. (laughs) Well, he didn't come by that night, but we lived on that island for three days. In fact, the wind switched that night, so we had to change our stands. So at 3.30 in the morning, we're driving a boat out to this island to move our stands because this is our opportunity. Well, the last morning we could hunt, it was a Sunday morning, I think Scott was preaching, I had it off, we were sitting there and we saw him on the mainland, not on the island. (laughs) And he chased the doe out of sight. And we had about an hour left before we had to get to church. And Ryan looked at me, he goes, I think there's a 25% chance that he swims over here and comes. Well, a half hour later, here he comes. The moment we've been waiting for are, <laughs> you know, for 11 years. He's coming, he's really coming. I can't believe it. I draw back and I put it on him and I shoot a foot over his back. And this is like the nightmare I've thought about before. But by God's grace, it's like he didn't even know what happened, and he walked in closer. I shot him. He's famous in our house. He's called the Island Buck. <laughs> but to be able to go grab onto that buck, Ryan on the videos crying. People that aren't bow hunters think this is really funny and, and laugh at it. All that to say this. We went up to that buck. We held him. Here's 11 years. What would it take for me to lay my bow down on top of him, leave him there, and just walk away? What, you know, almost nothing, right? Almost nothing. But in this account, we see fishermen with the greatest catch of their life, do exactly that. What was it that they saw? Let's look at this story. Let's look at this account. Jesus is preaching. The crowds are so big at this point in time. He's already done so many miracles that the crowds are gathering around him. They want to hear him speak. They want to hear the word the text tells us. And they're crowding. I mean, you just got to put yourself on the ground there. Jesus wants to teach, but everybody wants to get in close to him. It's almost impossible. It's like chaos. But he sees fishermen over here, asks if he can get into the boat and just get away from the shore a little bit so he can teach the crowds, and he does. But after that, he's in the boat with Simon, with Peter, and and uh, Peter hasn't been called yet to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. He's going to be at the end of this. But Peter's in the boat with him, and Jesus says, when he gets done preaching, let's go fishing. Let's, let's, let's go out into the waters. So here's a carpenter from Nazareth telling a lifelong fisherman, let's go fishing. And from what I read is the best fishing on the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee. This is the only place that's referred to uh, as the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, the fishing there is much more productive in the middle of the night. But now the carpenter is telling the fishermen, let's go out in the middle of the day and let your nets down. And Simon says, Peter, he says, we've been fishing all night long. It wasn't a good night of business. It wasn't the catch of our dreams. It didn't go good. And he had already cleaned his nets. Now, I imagine that took a lot of work. Once you got them cleaned, you really didn't want to go get them dirty again. But because Christ was the one who said it, they went out. 
he, he did what Jesus asked, and they put the nets down, and the catch is so big, the text tells us that their nets are breaking. So once again, these aren't stories. These are real people on a real lake, and they're out in the deep. Their nets are breaking, and they're calling to their partners, uh, to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're, they have a fishing partnership together, it seems. And they call and say, come, come help us. This is the catch we've probably, we've been talking about our whole life. And they come over and there's so many fish. Now imagine this, that the nets are breaking and both boats are sinking. Don't think of a, oh, that's a, that's the best catch we've ever had. This is absolutely unbelievable. And I can just imagine Peter doing what he has to do to get it in, and they're getting the enough fish in to the point where they're both sinking, and then it dawns on him. And then he sees a little bit, at least, of the glory, the divinity of the one who's in the boat with him. And he does something that might seem surprising at first. He falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. Go, get out of my presence. Peter learned something about himself, not by looking at himself, but by the bright light of Jesus' glory was revealing things about him he had never seen before. And so he says, depart, for I'm a sinful man. And we're told that everyone there was shocked. James and John were shocked at the catch. And then Jesus says this to Peter. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. You're going to be fishing for men. Same occupation, different goal. You know, we're not going from bass to muskie. You know, that takes different equipment. We're going from fish to men. And then how the text ends. The two boats on the side of the shore the biggest catch they've always dreamed about. Sitting there, their nets, their boats, their identity, and they left it all, and they followed him. So that's the story. That's the account we have. I shouldn't call it a story. Stories we might think of as fictional. This is the Word of God. This is what happened. Now, I want to give you four things we can get from this text with one driving message. The driving message is this. If someone asks you tomorrow, what's the sermon about? Here's what you tell them. I must leave everything behind and go fishing with Jesus. You can remember that, right? Leave everything behind and go fishing with Jesus. Now let me show you how this text unfolds. First, Peter listens to Jesus' words. Now, he must have been listening, listening to his preaching enough to be willing to put Jesus in his boat and take him out. So he's listening to his preaching even before, but then when he's done preaching... He listens to the carpenter give him fishing advice and actually probably reluctantly and a little frustrated, but he goes out and he does what Jesus asks him to do. Now, two things about listening to God's Word. Listening to God's Word is almost always more difficult than doing what you feel like doing. Here's the principle. And uh, this comes from the book Gospel Treason. 
If you live a feeling-oriented life, if you can imagine here you are and you come to a crossroads uh, where they V off and this crossroads is the feeling-oriented life, this crossroads is the command-oriented life, the Word of God-oriented life. Now, at that moment, at that V, to go towards the feeling-oriented life always starts easier, but ends up harder. To follow the, the command-oriented life or God's Word, it always begins harder, but gets easier. It would have been easier not to go back out fishing. The nets are already clean to use your common sense But Jesus said, go out and do it. It's harder to follow God's Word, but listen, it's always more fruitful. It always ends up more fruitful. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, if you want to take the easy road and do whatever you want, you'll lose it. It gets harder at the end. Death is there, eternal death in hell ultimately. But if you want to lose your life, take the hard road now, it's actually going to get easier, and at the end of the road, you're going to see the fulfillment of life. Listen to God's Word. That's what Peter did. Second, see His glory. Peter perceived Jesus' divine glory, power, and grace by faith. He perceived it. When Jesus showed up in His hometown in the synagogue, they did not perceive His glory. They wanted Him out of there just as Peter wanted Him out of there in the moment. But they didn't see glory. They saw a man who was convicting them of their sins, and they didn't like it. He was showing them the hardness of their hearts, and they said, get out of here. They drove him out of the synagogue, brought him to the brow of the cliff, and tried to kill him. But he passed through their midst. But Peter sees his glory, and in seeing his glory... He sees his sin. You see, none of you know the fullness of the degree of the glory of God. You can grab whatever you can grab onto by faith from the Scriptures, but when you see Him face to face, it's going to be greater than you know. So if that's true, now here's the other principle you also don't know how sinful you are. You see, we compare each other to each other and we come up with the conclusion that, you know what, I'm really not that bad. In in the whole scheme of things, I'm better than my neighbors or I'm as good as my neighbors or if you're not as good as your neighbors, at least you're not the murderer or the (laughs) rapist or whatever. We can think of ourselves as not that bad, but when you come into the presence of God one day, two things are going to be clear as a bell. God's glory is much greater than you ever knew. You know, there's, there's all sorts of people that say, when I face God, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to... No, it's not going to be a whole lot of talking going on in the presence of the glory of God. They're going to see His glory. All of you will see it. It's more than you can imagine. But your sin in the that blazing light, you're going to know how wretched you are inside. This is what's happening to Peter as he sees the glory of God. Uh, you know, I heard a story Charles Spurgeon told about... Uh, when he was younger and rebellious, a old lady came up to him and said, you want to know something, Charles? Your mother prays for you to be saved. 
Your mother wants you to follow Christ. And she loves you and she weeps and, and he's like, I know, I hear her. And she said, well, let me tell you something. When your mom's standing before the throne of God and you stand before the glory of his presence and your mom sees you not as this cute little son, but sees the fullness of your rebellion, she will not cry, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't send him to hell. But she'll applaud the righteousness of God and his judgment because she will know her son to be more like he really is. He'll be exposed. This is why in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah got to see a glimpse into the temple and got to see God seated on his throne and his train filling up the whole temple, Isaiah's response was this. Now, get this. This is probably the most righteous man on the face of the earth. Here's what he says. I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's what Isaiah sees the throne of God and says, woe woe is me. In the Hebrew, it can mean like, Damn me. Damn me. This is what I deserve. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Imagine if you're in a hotel and you go open a door to a conference room and the president and all the big wigs of the United States are sitting in there and they have a meeting. You're not going to be like, oh, hey, guys, how's it going? You're going to go, whoops, and get out of there. You're in the presence of, well, you might not think glory, you may think glory, but I about guarantee you you're not going to waltz into that room. And when men are exposed to the glory of God, the response out of their mouth, if the grace of God is upon them, is woe is me. I'm a sinful man. This is who I am. So... Listen to God's word, see his glory, see your sin. And finally, fall, follow, fish, and feed. I, I tried to make these separate points, but they're all interconnected, and it was just easier to put them all together. And by fall... I don't just mean recognize your sin, but I mean die. Die to yourself. Get off the throne of your heart. Lose your life. You know, when I got to go to Africa a couple years ago, uh, we have advantages of being in America in a lot of different ways, but there's disadvantages as well, especially spiritually. Because in Africa, if you're going to trust Christ, you have this definitive decision to make that's going to affect your whole life. Like, whether or not you're going to lose it is going to be seen in a couple months. Uh, Ibrahim, a dear brother over there, when he came to know Christ, his wife came, came to know Christ, they were rejected from the village almost immediately. It wasn't very long after Ibrahim's wife dies and his wife's laying there dead. Now, Ibrahim's my age. There's a lot of death at very young age there. Three out of five kids die before they're five. He's sitting here with his wife and the village is around him and they're mocking him and they're saying, see This is what happens when you trust in uh, white man's God. This is what happens. A curse gets put on you. That's why she died. And they said, she was a believer of Jesus. She's a dog. We will not bury her. 
Now, this is, this is odd because this is a communal village. Everybody helps everyone with everything. If a family member dies, the village comes and helps Barry. And they're all mocking Ibrahim, saying, if you don't denounce Christ, we won't help you bury your wife. She can be eaten by dogs. And Ibrahim said, I'll bury her myself. Now, there had been ministry going on in this village for a a little while, and all of a sudden, seven, I think it was seven, men come out who had been thinking about the teaching and said, we're standing with Ibrahim. We're following his God. Church starts in that moment. But here's what you knew. Uh, when we got to preach the gospel there, we had people excited, in tears, receiving Christ. But Mark says, we'll see. Because the cost comes tonight and tomorrow. Because if this is your little business, no one's going to buy from you anymore. No one's going to... Like, you lose your family. It's the... It's like... Man, you lead them to Christ, but then they lose their life. And it dawned on me, and it's it's probably 50-50 on the ones that actually decide to follow Christ that actually remain. The one man, which I was sure God did a work, the next day, he was scared to talk to us. He had already received persecution for listening to us. Here's where we struggle. As Americans, how do you know if you'll follow Jesus? How do you know you're just not one of the crowds that thinks he's pretty cool? Church is kind of like country club. You, you know, you believe all the stuff. How do you know you'll leave everything and follow Christ? See, we don't have the test built in. You become a Christian here, this might change, but for the most part, people throw a party for you. Like I always say, grandma comes to the baptism and gives you a hundred bucks. You get baptized in Africa and you lose your family. The village, you gain a really small family, the few believers there. And so here's how I want you to wrestle this morning. I want you to pray and consider if you've taken Jesus' words seriously. If you're like Peter and can walk away from everything and follow Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about what that means. Some of you are thinking, do I need to quit my job? Jesus, or Peter remained a fisherman. His goals changed. His Now, here's a theological, theologically interesting thing that's happening. Peter recognizes, get away from me, as he, as he sees his sin in Christ. Christ's glory is shining in. But the problem is, unless you get close to Jesus, you can't be healed. But Peter doesn't know yet the end of the story. All he knows is glory's here, and I'm not worthy to be in his presence. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Peter's probably like, I don't get why not. Here's your glory. Here's my sinfulness. But he does learn. Did you know there's another fishing story in the Bible? Turn to John 21. I want you to see the difference in Peter's response after the resurrection. John 21, we're going to start in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So Jesus is risen from the dead. The disciples have already seen him at least once. And here's what happens. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin 
Nathanael of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others' disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, let's go bow hunting, essentially. (laughs) Jesus has risen from the dead. He's still fishing. He says, let's go fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat. Now, let, let me just... I don't know if they've been, how much they've been fishing since they started following Jesus. But remember the last time, or at least one of the recent times they've been fishing? I wonder if that's in their minds. I bet it is. Uh, so they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Hey, this is how it's supposed to happen, right? Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put out, or he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He was in his underwear, evidently. And he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. So get the picture. Same thing. Nets didn't break this time, a little bit different. But Peter realizes it's Jesus, and he dives out of the boat, and he can't get to him quick enough. Does he not see his glory? Does he not know his sin? Yes, he sees his glory. Yes, he sees his sin. He's denied Jesus. The rooster's already crowed. But he knows in light of his sin that when that he needs to run to Christ. That, that, that that's the place of forgiveness. Uh, one of the things that was pointed out to me that uh, could be imaged here uh, is as Peter jumps into the sea, the sea in the Bible uh represents the judgment of God. Uh, When Israel passes through the sea, they're saved from the judgment of God. The Egyptians were crushed under the judgment of God. In Revelation 4, there's a sea, and, and this is before the throne of God, as John sees it. There's a sea that has a rainbow over it. There's flashes of lightning But at the end of Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no sea, there's rivers. Because rivers represent life, and seas represent judgment. That's why when we baptize somebody, we put them under the water, and it represents being dead in Christ, as Christ was punished under the wrath of God for your sin. So we, by faith, trust in Him, are found in Him. And as He comes up out of the water... It represents just as Christ died and was raised, so we in Christ have already died for our sins and have been raised to everlasting life. So Peter essentially following Jesus, getting to Jesus, dives in to a difficult sea, a difficult task. As we're going to see as this story plays out, let's keep reading. When they got to the land, uh, when they when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you've just caught." So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, or full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, here's good news. When they had finished breakfast, 
in our new bodies that we have, you could touch Jesus' wounds, and you could also eat food, and that's good news because that means we're going to be eating with our eternal bodies. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Here's the resurrected Christ having breakfast with them. We're going to get a body like His one day. Uh, Simon, son of John, or Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? All these, all your friends, do you love me more? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then Jesus tells this weird little parable. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then Luke says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, let me show you the parallels. So Jesus just told Peter, you're going to die with your arms outstretched. Tradition is is that he died crucified upside down. And yet even after Jesus said that, he said, Peter, follow me. Follow me. Here's the parallels. They fished all night. They caught nothing in both stories. They went back out to throw out the nets in one, and the other one, they're already out there. Jesus is on shore. He says, throw over the right side of the boat. They catch fish, the nets break. They catch fish, the nets don't break. But it's a similar miracle. Peter says, (laughs) depart from me. (laughs) Some of you aren't going to get the rest of the sermon now. (laughs) Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. In this one, Peter swims to Christ. In the first one, he says, now you're going to fish for men. And in this one, he says, now you're going to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In this one, it says, Peter left everything and followed him. In this one, Jesus says, you're actually going to die, Peter. And it's going to glorify God in your death. Follow me. See that? Jesus is asking for your life. And he's not asking for your life to get you saved and coast into heaven. But he wants you to catch men and women where you are probably. Whatever it is you do, wherever the place you are, catch them. And when you catch them, feed them, tend them, feed them again. It's almost like the Great Commission, isn't it? Make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I know. So, will you have Jesus? I just want to end by letting Jesus call you. I just want to read some scripture to you. Jesus, in Matthew 13, 44, said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Here's my question for you. Have you so so seen Jesus' glory and so seen that he's worth dying for that you could say, I went and sold everything I had 
to buy the treasure. And it says, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has in order to get the treasure. And I'm saying, you're not in Africa right now. So I'm trying to help you as Americans pray to God and say, God, help me treasure you in such a way that I really say with my life, I might not have to give up my life tomorrow, but tomorrow I'm going to decide, am I going to be selfish or am I going to live for the kingdom of God, for the joy of my wife and my children, for my brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, that will face you right away in the morning. It will face you this afternoon. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's not like you receive Christ. It's like when you receive Christ, you nailed yourself to the cross, you're slowly dying a death on the cross, and every day you got to keep this old Sam dying, this selfish, rebellious Sam. Keep this Sam dying, that the Spirit of God may reveal the new creation in me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, listen to Jesus' reasoning. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or and loses or forfeits himself? It's a good question. You want to make money? You want to have all these earthly pleasures? What if you got it all, but you got to give up your soul? What, what have you gained? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. You see, when Jesus comes back, there's two groups of people. There's those who see him and swim to him, say, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. And then there's others that are ashamed and go, oh, shoot, he's here. And the scary thing is the New Testament tells us that out of those who profess to follow Jesus, out of those professors, most of them are going to end up in hell. Most of them are going to take the easy road that leads to destruction. And out of those who profess Christ, only a few are going to enter through the narrow gate because the way is hard. That's Matthew 7. We don't have time to go there. So my pleading with you is, when he shows up, are you a person that's been praying, Lord, come, Lord, come, so that when he comes, you're like, finally, I've been waiting for you. Matthew 19. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? This looks like a good prospect, doesn't it? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What still do I lack? By the way, he hadn't kept all those according to the heart of the law, but Jesus has grants it to him. But he'll expose him here. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Are you seeing the theme? Lose your life, follow me. Take up your cross, follow me. Leave your boat, leave your nets, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's very difficult, or with difficulty a rich man... Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So... Jesus offers treasure. So all you have, come get treasure. Can you do that? Do you love him that much? Can you say, Lord, here's my life. It doesn't mean I quit my job. It doesn't mean I go 
but it does mean this. I'm not doing this. I'm not waking up in the morning. What do I want today? But I'm going, what do you want with my life? It's yours. You bought it. You purchased that life. First John 2.28 says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abide in him. Find your hope in him so that you won't shrink back when he comes. Hebrews 9.28, you've heard me say this so many times, so Christ, having been offered to bear sin, the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's my question for you. I leave you with that. When Jesus comes back, will he find you eagerly waiting for him, or will he only find you in church knowing all the right answers, but saving your own life? John 3, 36, I promise it's the last one. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Every human being on this earth is walking around with the wrath of God over their head unless you've trusted in Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, Jesus Christ swallowed up all that wrath took your punishment. So will you listen to his word? Will you see his glory? Will you see your sin? Will you fall, follow, fish, and feed? That's the question you got to ask. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you don't save people that are good enough but you save people who cry out with judgment on themselves. I'm unclean, I'm sinful, I'm not worthy. Lord, help us not be people that are just broken in our sin that leads to destruction like Judas did, but help us be like Peter that recognizes his sin, yet runs to Christ knowing he's the one that can pay the price. Lord God, have mercy on our souls that this whole room would be full of people waiting for you and treasuring you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.